0: Luke chapter 19, if you want to turn there in your Bible with me, please. Now, this is our last Sunday in this series, and it's going to kind of pull it all together for us. If you've missed any part of the series, it's all online on our podcast. I would encourage you to go back and listen as we talk about getting ready for the kingdom. Before we read the scripture, let me, let me talk a little bit about, just from, for a moment, about investments, Everybody knows what investments are. Um, you know, I remember you seeing the commercials used to be on TV, EF Hutton commercials, you know, and Charles Schwab and, and all those things about investing. And, and, and uh, back then when I used to watch those commercials, I said, hey, it'd be great to invest if I had something to invest, you know. Um, but we all, a lot of us have investments. And, and, and for example, a lot of you have an investment. The major investment of your life is your home. Maybe you bought a house. That's a big investment, isn't it? And you hope that as you live in that house and you begin to pay the mortgage down, you hope that that, uh, things turn around, our economy, and the value of the house goes up. So if the day ever comes when you need to sell the house, you'll actually have made some money. Um, That's an investment. Some of you say, well, my investment is my automobile. That's not an investment, all right? As soon as you drive that off a lot, it goes down in value significantly. That's not an investment. And we invest in things. The reason we invest, maybe it's in a retirement fund, an annuity, stocks, Whatever it might be, the reason we invest in things like that is because we 're hoping that the money we put into those of investments we 're hoping that those investments will bring great return, that they will grow that the money that we put in there will multiply in fact, right now in, in our in our economy in our country, the last couple of months. Um, the stock market's just kind of going through the roof. I mean, it's really gone up. And I was excited to see that because I get—I have an annuity the church contributes to for me uh, for retirement. Um, and and, and I, I get a statement every month from the annuity board. And it shows, you know, here's what your balances are in, in your accounts. I got money and I put them in a bunch of accounts. I started that back when I was a young man. And I put money, I said, let's put it in some aggressive funds. You know, when you're young, that's what you're supposed to do. Because you got plenty of time for it to go up and down and up and down. Well, now I'm 61 years old. And I'm seeing the stock market. And I'm looking at that email every month that shows... My, my investments are growing and growing, and I'm excited. Because a few years ago, I was watching them take a nosedive, you know. And all of a sudden, before I know it, I've lost thousands of dollars, you know, in one fell swoop. So here they are. They're doing better than ever. So I call the investment board, and I talk to a financial counselor. and I said, look, I'm 61. I said, I've got, I've got a few years left, I hope. And uh, I said, but, uh, you know, as, as, a, as much as it's grown... I'm just kind of fearful that pretty soon it's going to stop and it's going to come back down. and I really don't want to lose what I've gained. You know what I mean? I want to hang on to it. So let's take the funds and let's shift some things around and put some uh, most of my stuff into stuff that's not so aggressive, a little bit more conservative, which is what you're supposed to do when you grow older is invest in more conservative things so that if it goes down, you don't lose that much. And so he did for me and and we've we've done that because investments, the purpose of those things is to see them grow and uh, and increase in amount. Um, We're going to today talk about the kingdom assignment and closing out the series. And it's about you and me. And I'm going to say this word a bunch of times. So I want you to remember because I may come and say, and we're doing what? And you're going to say investing. Okay, you got that? Investing. And I want you to listen really carefully. Man, I made a special effort to make a specific point in the last gathering, and one fellow walked out, and he totally missed it. He got it totally wrong, and I had to say, no, 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 that's not what was said. So I want you to listen very, very carefully. If the person next to you is uh, starting to nod off, be sure you just give them a little nudge, and if it's your husband, just get him him a good nudge. All right, now we're all familiar with the Palm Sunday story. Today's Palm Sunday. We're all familiar with the Palm Sunday story that gets the most attention. Jesus riding on the donkey down through the streets in Jerusalem, the people throwing palm branches in their, in their cloaks and everything. And blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest and so forth. And we love that story and we ought to love that story. But that's not all that happened on Palm Sunday. If you back up a little bit, earlier in the day, Jesus was in Jericho, just a handful of miles away from Jerusalem, and something really neat happened. You know this story because you used to sing about this guy when you were a little kid in Sunday school. Remember, he climbed up into a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. And that happened on Palm Sunday. Zacchaeus came down and met the Lord and God changed his life and so forth. That was on Palm Sunday. Well, right after that story, it tells us in Luke 19 that Jesus perceived that among his disciples, there was this thought that we're so excited, we're going to Jerusalem for Passover. And the reason that we're going to Jerusalem is because Jesus is going to march into town and the people are going to proclaim him king and he's going to start his kingdom right here and right now. And they were stoked about that. The kingdom is here, it's happening. He's going to chase the Romans out and the Romans are going to leave and he's going to establish his kingdom and reign forever and ever, just like it says in the Old Testament. And the disciples are all, man, this is the day. This, we're going to Jerusalem to start the kingdom. And Jesus saw that and he said, and thinks in his mind, they don't get it. Can you imagine that disciples of Jesus sometimes don't get it? I'm one of them. Don't get it. They don't get it. And so he said, I'll teach them with a parable, this parable about the kingdom.'" So I want you to follow along with me. In Luke chapter 19, I'm going to start with verse 12 and then read down through verse 26. Therefore, he said, because he perceived, hey, they're thinking the kingdom's going to happen right away. He said this, a nobleman traveled to a far country to receive for himself authority to be king and then return. So he's le- this nobleman's leaving the country. He's going somewhere else where he's going to be given authority to be king. He's going to come back to his kingdom. He called 10 of his servants, 10 of his slaves, and gave them 10 minas. I'll explain that in just a moment. And he told them, he gave them this instruction, engage in business until I come back. I'm leaving, get busy in business until I come back. And what did he want them to do? Well, here the next part tells us. His subjects, however, you kind of put this verse in parentheses, his subjects, not his servants, his subjects, hated him, and sent him a delegation saying, we don't want this man to rule over us. Now, that was very simply a prediction of what was going to happen in just a few days when they shouted from the crowd, crucify him, crucify him. We have no king but Caesar, right? You Remember that story. So you know who his subjects are. We'll explain that in just a moment. But his in verse 15, at his return, having received the authority to be king. He's been given authority to be king. It reminds me of Matthew 28, 19 and 20, where Jesus says right before the Great Commission, he says, all authority has been given to me. Having received authority to be king, he summoned these slaves he had given money to. He's given them all these, these minas. And so he comes back to his country, and he says, come back and tell me what you've done with it, how much they've made in business. Verse 16, the first came forward and said, Master, your mina has earned 10 more minas. It's increased tenfold. Ten times more than you gave me. That's what's come out of that mina that you gave me. Great, well done, good slave, he told him. verse 17. Because you have been faithful in a very small matter, have authority over 10 towns. He says, great. And here's what I'm going to do for you. You, I'm going to give you the authority to rule and to reign with me. I'm going to give you 10 towns you're in charge of in my kingdom. Pretty good reward. Another, or the second came, verse 18, and said, master, your mina has made five minas, saying, here's what he said to him. I have done what with your minas? I have invested your minas, and the return has been fivefold, five times more I've got to give back to you. And so he said to him, you will be over five towns. I'm going to reward you with authority over five towns. And another came and said, master, here is your mina. The coin that you gave me, I've still got it. I'm giving it back to you. It hasn't multiplied. I didn't invest it I have kept it hidden away in a cloth. I stuck it in a, in a handkerchief and I stuffed it under my mattress. And it's been there the whole time. And I, and I did that because I was afraid of you. I did that because you're a tough man. I did that because you collect what you didn't s- deposit and reap what you didn't sow. What's he doing, by the way? He was lazy. He did nothing what the master gave him. And he's putting the blame on who? The king, the master. Your fault. I didn't do anything with this. You're a hard guy. So, verse 22, he, the master, the king, told him, I will judge you by what you have said, you evil slave. Now, he judged him as being evil because he didn't invest what he had given him in his kingdom. You're evil for doing that. If you knew I was a tough man, collecting what I didn't deposit and reaping what I didn't sow, he's not saying you're right about that. He said, but if you knew that, why in the world didn't you take it and put it in the bank into a savings account and at least let it draw interest? That's an investment too, isn't it? Sure, why don't you do that? And when I returned, I would have collected it with interest. So verse 24, he said to to those standing there. There's a bunch of people there, apparently. All the servants who've gotten minas. He said to those standing there, take the mina away from him. The one he's got, the one he's hidden under his mattress all this time. Take it away. He gets nothing. And give it to the one who has 10 minas. But they said to him, master, He has 10 minas already, and you're going to give him one more? Here's what they were doing. And this was, you can tell, these these Jews in this story are about to become Baptists in a church somewhere because you know what they're saying? That's not fair. He's already got 10, and you're going to give him another one? That's not fair. What about the rest of us? And the point is, whose minas were they? The king's. And doesn't he have the right to do with them whatever he chooses? Of course he does. There's no entitlement here in this story. I just want you to understand. The master of the king said to them, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. And from the one who does not have, even what he does have will be taken away. And then he addresses the uh, subjects that said crucify him. We don't want him to be our king. He said, bring here these enemies of mine who did not want me to rule over them and slaughter them in my presence. What's the story about? Let me run through the characters in this parable and, and explain it and, then, and apply it to our lives right now as we live out this dress rehearsal. The nobleman is Jesus, all right? I think that's pretty obvious. He ascended to heaven after his resurrection and then he would at a later date return to, to us, to them as king. So it's about his leaving and coming back, his return. And this is Jesus letting his disciples know, hey guys, the kingdom is not about to happen today. Yes, we're going to Jerusalem, but that's not what this is about. I'm coming back. I'm leaving and coming back. Acts chapter one, you can read when he ascended into heaven. But the promise was that he would return and we are still waiting on him to return today, are we not? We are. And, and like John, at the end of the book of Revelation, right at the end of the Bible, one of the last things that's said in the Bible, I think you and I ought to be praying as John prayed, come Lord Jesus. Jesus said, pray, thy kingdom come. And we need to be praying. We're waiting for that. But as we're waiting, what are we supposed to be doing? Yeah. Investing. All right, good. Y'all are much brighter than the other people. Minas, what are the minas? A mina was a Greek coin. It was worth about 100 days' wages. Now, that number is going to come into significance later on this morning. It was worth 100 days' wages, so it was a relatively large sum of money. You think about it, a little more than three months' income. And here in the parable, the the minas represent— here's what the minas represent— the nobleman's Jesus, the minas are those talents, including our spiritual giftedness for ministry, our resources, our time. We talked about that last Sunday. Our finances, our life skills, everything that we possess that God has given us are represented by the minas. I'm to take those things and do what with them? Invest them in the kingdom. It represents our responsibility. The mina is the responsibility that you and I have as Christians to advance the kingdom. And he's given to us these minas to be used, to be invested, not to be neglected. So that's the minas. Now, the slaves or the servants are those that receive the minas. And those are all Christians from his departure, from the time he left after his resurrection until his return. That's including us today here in Nags Head Church, you are believers. You're his servant. Earlier, Mark chapter 10, verses 43 to 45, Jesus said, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. You want to be great in the kingdom? Got to be your servant. Servant to who? Whoever wants to be first among you must be a slave to all. Have you noticed in the last few weeks the word all appears a lot? Servant to all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Now, some Christians will willingly say, oh yeah, I want to be a Jesus servant. I want to serve Jesus with my life. And I think that's great. And Jesus says, to be my servant means you've got to serve who? Oh, a slave to all. Here's what that means. Please hear this. There is no place in the kingdom for someone says, yeah I want to be your servant, Jesus, but I just need to let you know up front I don't do windows. You know what that means yeah i I, I want to be a slave, but can I kind of let you know there's some things I'm not going to do A servant's role, if you're really a servant, a servant's role is simply this: what does a servant do? A servant does his master's will that's what a servant does his master whatever his master says, that's what a servant does. So whatever and however I can serve my master, I do so primarily by serving his family. And that's really what it takes to do ministry. It's what it takes to do mission outside his family, to reach those outside of Christ. It's a willingness, hear this, to do whatever it takes. Now, for example, let me give you a personal, my personal story. My primary ministry, my primary role in the church is to be a teaching pastor. That's what I do. How did I come to that? I didn't choose it. So well, you, you, you chose just what you decide? No, please hear me. Nobody in their right mind chooses to be a pastor, all right? It's just not something that you, oh yeah, I think I'll be a pastor. I think that's pretty, no, you don't want to do that. In fact, young men that come up to me and say, hey, you know, I think I'm called to be a pastor. I want to say, look, if you can do anything else in life, do it. Why is that? Because it's not easy, it's not simple, it's not hard. It's for some specifically called people to do that. And if you can do anything else in life and be happy, then you weren't called by God to pastor. My giftedness for ministry is teaching. And again, I didn't choose, we don't choose our spiritual gifts. God chooses them for us. Well, how did you discover your spiritual gift? And this ties in with being a servant. I, when I was 16 years old, there was a need in our church for, that I came to find out about for a, a teacher for a new class of second-grade boys, seven-year-old boys. So that means I was nine years. I got the number wrong last gathering. I was nine years. Is that right? Seven plus nine is 16, right? For you math geniuses. You common core kids, you don't know. Seven plus nine, <laughs> 16. Our church was growing. I mean, it was growing leaps and bounds, and a new class needed to be started for these boys. And one Sunday, my pastor, some of you remember Ken Conley. He used to come here and teach sometimes before he passed away and went to be with the Lord. And we've got him on video and so forth. Great, great man of God. He was my pastor when I was a kid. And Pastor Conley came up to me one Sunday. He said, hey, Rick, we have a need for a second grade boys class in our Sunday school. We are just run out of room. We need to start a new class. And he said, I want you to be that teacher. I had never taught anything. Never taught the Bible. Never taught little boys. But I was at the stage in my life when I was 16 where the passion in my life was I want to do whatever God wants me to do. That's where I was as a 16-year-old boy. God had gotten a hold of my heart that year and a lot of things were happening. And so... My pastor, I don't want to upset God, and I don't want to say no to God, because I didn't want to say, well, you know, I've never done that before. And, you know, uh, that means I'm not going to be able to be in the youth Sunday school class, and I like to be in there with all my friends, and, and so forth. And, I mean, I'm going to have to study a lesson. And I'm a junior in high school, and I don't want to disappoint God, and I certainly didn't, didn't want to disappoint my pastor either. So I looked at him, and I said, okay. And we didn't have a classroom, uh, so they put us in an old church bus in the parking lot. And that's where we had this class for these second grade boys. Now, Southern California, which is where this was, you can do a class and outside in a school bus, and it's not too bad year round. So I taught that class, and I taught those second grade boys who were just a few years younger than me. And as I'm doing that, it didn't take very long for me to have that aha moment. And I said, you know what? I really enjoy doing this. I'm really getting some fulfillment out of teaching these boys the Bible. And in that experience in my life as a 16-year-old, the the idea of whatever it takes, I discovered how God wanted to to use me to minister to the church today. That's how I discovered my spiritual gift. I didn't know that's what it was, but I realized I want to teach the Bible. Be a servant. Be whatever it takes. Find a place to plug in and watch God work in using you. Now, the servants, the minas, the noblemen, next are the subjects. The subjects are the Jewish people who that week rejected Christ as Messiah. That's the story. And in preparing us for the kingdom, here are some lessons that I want us to get today from this parable. Number one, We've each been given equal opportunities to invest in the kingdom. We've each been given equal opportunities. And this isn't about, again, it's not about money and it's not about finances. It's about what God has given you and me to invest in His kingdom. Because if it was about money, some of you would say, well, if so and so's got a lot more money than me, he can invest a whole lot more. It's not about money, it's about talent, it's about time, it's about resources, it's about effort. And he's put us all in an equal playing field, Christian. He's given us all equal opportunities. Each of them got, all 10 got the same amount. Did they not? They all got Amina, all 10, same thing. Number two, we've each been given the same instructions. And he gave the same instructions to these 10 servants. And he simply said, you engage in business, Until I come back, you take these minas and you invest them somehow so that when I come back, you've got something to show for them. Now, a parable isn't something to be taken literally. So as I said again, I'll say again, it's not about money and it's not about building a business. He said, do business. That was Jesus' way of saying what? Invest. Invest Invest this. It's about kingdom and it's about Christ and it's about what he's given to each of us to make an, listen, an eternal impact with our lives. That's why we're here. Number three, we, we will each give an account for how we use what Christ has given us. We talked about the judgment seat of Christ a few weeks ago. When each of us who are believers will stand before the King and have our lives laid open before Him. And it's going to be a judgment of our faithfulness in serving Him in ministry and in mission in our lives. It's not a judgment for sin. It's not to determine whether or not we're going to get eternal life. That's already been settled, hasn't it? Our sin was judged on Christ on the cross. And when you put your faith in Jesus, whenever that has been in your life, that was taken care of forever. So it's not about that, the judgment seat of Christ. But at that judgment, number four, we will either be rewarded or will suffer loss of reward according to how we served. Uh, the, the old poem says, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Paul wrote to the Corinthians about this judgment and the reward and loss of reward. He said, 1 Corinthians three fourteen and 15, if anyone's work that he has built survives, survives the judgment. He gave a picture of all of the stuff that you've done in ministry and in mission in your lives. It's like it's tossed into a fire. And when the fire dies down, if it was for real, if it was for Christ, if it was for his glory and not your own, it survives. It's there. And it's your reward. He said gold and silver and precious stones. He said, but if it doesn't survive the fire and there's nothing left But ashes, look what he says. If anyone's work is burned up, it will be lost, but he will be what? Saved. This is not, again, it's not about losing salvation. It's about losing reward. Losing reward because I refuse to invest in the kingdom with what God gave me be saved, yet it will be like an escape through fire. And I use the example a couple of weeks ago that I've seen many times in my role in the fire department of people whose houses burn down in the middle of the night. They get out wearing their pajamas, their flip-flops, but they've got nothing else. They've left it all inside and it's all burned to the ground. They've, are, are they saved? Yeah, Their lives were saved. But what do they have to show for it? It's all gone. There's nothing left. He says that that's what it's going to be like at that judgment. Now, that tells me this, not every Christian is going to be rewarded at the judgment seat of Christ. All Christians will be there, but those who fail to invest in the kingdom in this life will have nothing to show for it then. They'll essentially be, here's well, well, they'll be there? Yeah, they'll be there, but they'll, it's like they'll be sitting in the grandstands watching the game go on. They'll be spectators, but they won't be players. Because in this life, instead of being contributors, investors in the kingdom, they were consumers only. God wants you and me to be contributors, not consumers. Number five, we learn from this story that the rewards that he's going to give out have to do with ruling and reigning with Christ. Hey, 10 minas, one mina turns into 10, I'm going to give you authority over 10 towns. Five, I'm going to give you authority over five. That's how Christ is going to reward people in the kingdom. Paul understood this in 2 Timothy 2.12, in the first part of the verse, he said, if we endure, which means we don't quit, we don't give up. If we endure, we will what? Reign with him. We'll reign with him. Paul understood that. It would be a time of faithfulness to Christians, and that part of that reward is to serve Jesus in the kingdom He's going to let you do that by giving authority over this world as part of the royal family. Can I say it this way? You and I, who will be rewarded in this way by Christ, it's like we're we're part of the royal family. We belong to the family that Jesus is the king. We will be essentially princes and princesses in that kingdom, helping him rule over the world for 1,000 years. Number six. But if we waste our lives and our opportunities, we'll receive no reward in the kingdom. We'll receive no reward in the kingdom. Again, again, and let me say, I'll say this again. Please get this. This is not talking about eternal life and how you are saved. A dear brother, walked out after he says. Then he says, "I'm all confused. I thought we were saved by faith, and here you are talking about works." This is not about salvation. This is not about eternal life. That is by faith by grace alone, is it not? You'll never hear anything different from this preacher. This is not about getting to heaven. This is about being rewarded in the kingdom, which will take place on this planet. This is about rewards for how you served Him as a Christian. Right? We're not. Salvation is not earned by works. And you notice what we said. The third servant. What did he do? He tried to blame the king. He said, you're such a hard master. I was afraid of you. It's your fault that I didn't do anything with what you gave me. And some of us do that with the Lord. If he hadn't heaped so many burdens on my life, maybe I could have done more. Or, you know, I was afraid I just, if I started doing something, I might do the wrong thing. As if he hasn't given us plenty of instructions, plenty of fellow servants to serve with. If he hasn't given us the Holy Spirit to guide us, I got to be honest with you. If I stopped and said, you know what? I can't do what you've called me to do, Lord, because I'm afraid I might do the wrong thing. I would have never gotten started because there's been plenty of times in my 30 plus years in ministry that I've done some wrong things. But I thank God for his grace. Paul says this in the second part of that verse we saw just a moment ago in 2 Timothy 2.12. He said, and if we deny him, he will also deny us. What a misconstrued verse that has become. How do we deny him? We deny him by not living for him. We deny him by not serving him now. And he says, if we deny him, he's going to deny us. What does that mean? That means he's going to deny us these rewards at his judgment seat. Again, this passage is not about losing salvation. It's about losing what? Reward. And you go on and you read the next verse in 2 Timothy 2, and he makes it really He's clear. He says, even if we are faithless, talking to Christians, he said, even if you quit believing. He's not faithless, he says, because he cannot deny himself. He remains faithful. Why? Because your salvation, my salvation, if it's in Christ, is not based upon my performance. It's based upon what Jesus did on the cross. It's based upon his promise to me of everlasting life, right? So where am I to invest what Christ has given me? He's given us things, haven't he? He's given us meanness, if you will. Where do I invest? Two places. Number one, I invest in the church through ministry and discipleship. Our gifts are for the purpose of building up the church, serving one another in the body. And when I say gifts, I mean those gifts that are listed uh, in, in Romans chapter 12 and 1 Corinthians chapter 12. You need to take Tom's class when he teaches it the next time about discovering your gift in your ministry through the church, through ministry and discipleship. Secondly, outside the church and I don't mean outside the building so much, but outside the body of Christ in the world through evangelism and missions. And so the judgment is clear. We'll either be rewarded for what we've done with our gifts and the gospel, or we will lose rewards for hiding them away. Like that guy, I hid it in a handkerchief and stuffed it under the mattress. Can we do that today with what he's given us? Can we hide them away? Let me suggest a number of ways we do. We never discover how God has gifted and shaped us to do ministry. There are some Christians, and, and, and there are some here in this room, and, and you might have been a Christian now for five years or ten years, or I know some Christians even longer. And if I said, stand up and tell us what your spiritual gift is, you'd be hard-pressed as to what to say. And some of you would say, oh, I love to cook. That's not a spiritual gift. Not in Romans 12, not in First Corinthians 12. I love to be nice to people. How do you use that? I mean, what's your spiritual gift? And the lists are there, and you need to find out, how has God gifted me to do ministry? That's one way we hide what he's given us. We never discover what it is he's called us to do. Secondly, maybe we do know what it is, but we just refuse to serve for whatever reasons. Last week, we talked about the reason of time. I just don't have the time. When things settle down, we talked about those excuses. But I just can't right now. You know what you're doing? You're hiding the meanness that he's given you. Another way we hide is we won't take the step and partner with the church. How might Jesus respond to someone at the judgment seat and he might say, now now what church did you belong to? And that person says, well, you know what? I never did join a church because I just figured out in my life I didn't need the church. Well, Please understand, Jesus is not going to smile because the church is his bride. He loves the church. He died for, the Bible says, the church. And when a Christian says, I can do just fine and not be a part of the church, you're missing out, you're hiding the mina in the the handkerchief and stuffing it under the mattress. He created us to be in community in the church. And, And do you ever wonder why? In the New Testament, I want you to, there are no examples of people who become Christians who are not then plugged into a local church. Why is that? Because the church is God's plan for evangelizing the world. Hear me. And he has no plan B. It's the church. Attendance. Well, I go to church that, yeah. Attendance alone is not the deal. Some of you need today to take out a communication card and say, I'm ready to take your class, Rick, and and become part of Nag said Church because you've been putting off way too long. Let me just tell you that I just like to tell it like it is sometimes. Have you noticed that? You're wasting opportunities. You're wasting opportunities to invest in his kingdom. Then how might we hide it? We don't share the gospel with those who need Christ. We never witness to people. You just have decided, I'm not going to give anybody an invitation to to come to church on Easter, which is about the simplest thing anyone could do. Easy. We don't share with people. We hope somebody else will do it, somebody who's been given the same gospel as I have. I love to tell people and say, I just can't do that. And I want to say, I say sometimes, I say, you know what? God's put the same Holy Spirit in you that he's put in me. He's no different. Same person. But we don't take those opportunities to share the gospel. We come up with great excuses like, I'm just not knowledgeable, and I'm afraid somebody will ask me a question I can't answer, and uh, I'm afraid, and i would be honest with you, I don't know any lost people. Heaven help you. We refuse opportunities to do missions together, whether it's to go on a trip and serve and share somewhere else or to get involved here with the growing number of missions projects that Nags Church does for our community, please don't waste those opportunities. Don't hide the gospel. It's a fascinating parable, I think, this story. It says so much to us about the kingdom that's coming and the importance of using our time and our resources now, right here during the dress rehearsal time that we're living in for the kingdom that's to come. Now counts for something significant, church. Our time is precious and it's not to be wasted. Nag said, Church, those of you who are partners, you're members of this church, your ministry that you faithfully serve each week is not going unnoticed by the Lord. He sees it, He knows what you're doing. He's writing it down. Those guys out in the parking lot wearing the orange vests, He's writing that down, saying, They did a good job parking and saying hi to people. He said, don't, But don't park there. They did a good job, you know. What, and, and He's writing that stuff down. He saved us so that we might serve him through his church right now. Take his gospel around the world. So please, please hear me. Don't miss the dress rehearsal. Let's pray. Lord, you gave this story to your disciples because it was important for them to understand that the kingdom was not yet coming, that the kingdom was going to be a while while you went away, but you would return and you would reward them if they faithfully served you. So, Father, as we ponder these things today, as these points and these principles are worked into our hearts and our lives by your Holy Spirit, may we respond today by saying, I'm going to invest The rest of my life, whatever time I have left, I want it to be used for you and your kingdom, Jesus. In your name I pray.